So I actually want to begin this morning uh, by showing you a picture. So in a moment, we'll have a picture up on the screen. Um, this is uh, my wife. Her name is Sharon, for those who don't know her. And this picture was taken exactly a week ago, right? Now, what I want you to do is I want you to notice the smile that's on her face, okay? She's smiling because Sharon, along with 17,000 other people, flocked to the Wells Fargo uh, Center last week to see some punk named Justin Timberlake in concert. And for two hours, that was the look on her face. I want you to know, Sharon and I have been married now for seven years. I've never seen her look that way when she sees me. Never. I've never. I mean, I'm glad that somebody captured it because I've never seen her face that way before. But some punk, right, who's mildly attractive, who can sing a little bit and maybe dance a little bit, who's rich and famous, comes to town and she is giddy. She just can't help but, stop, but smile, right? So, am I bitter? Not at all, not at all. <laughs> but this is the thing, right? It wasn't just her, right? Sharon told me that men and women, I think mostly women, but men and women flocked to the Wells Fargo Center with her, all sorts of ages, from far and wide to come and see Justin Timberlake in action. Because for these people, it wasn't enough just to see him on YouTube or to watch an episode of Saturday Night Live. They needed to see him in person, right? It's like all the things that they have heard about him, they've heard all sorts of things, and yet they needed to be able to see for themselves. They needed to know that JT was, in fact, as amazing as everything that they've heard about him. And according to Sharon, he was, right? So that night, uh, I remember it was probably a little bit past midnight, she comes back into the house, she comes back into the house, and I'm sleeping, she wakes me up, and she can't stop talking about all that she saw. She was, she was telling me about how amazing he danced and how amazing his singing was. And she went on and on and on. And she told me that he's even coming back next February. Wonderful, right? I'm excited. <laughs> uh, and I imagine on Sunday evening last week that there were conversations like that happening all over Philadelphia, right? All sorts of people who went to go see Justin Timberlake in person and whose lives will never be the same. That's what I imagine. Well, this morning, we're actually taking a look at the Justin Timberlake of the Bible, right? His name is Solomon. Now, he wasn't a dancer and he wasn't a singer, uh, and he didn't go on tour and sell out stadiums after stadium, but his life was also marked by riches and power and fame. Like, for example, if, if MTV Cribs existed back then, he would be on every episode for like, season after season. He was that kind of guy. And just like Justin Timberlake, people flocked from far and wide to come and to see this Solomon. And so this morning what we're going to do is we're actually going to take a look at the story of one of those visitors, one of those people who came to see Solomon. And we're going to hear that person's story. It's the, the Queen of Sheba. Her story is actually found in 1 Kings chapter 10. It was a passage that Susan read to us this morning. And it's actually that this story is a, a pretty amazing story because it's, it's quite the encounter. And, and part of it is because of just who the Queen of Sheba is, right? Because she was no ordinary woman. She's actually described as a, a woman of great wealth and power herself. She's actually the, the ruler of a kingdom in the Middle East, what would now be considered modern-day Yemen. 
And the story says that though she lived about 1,500 miles away from this Solomon, she was hearing people talk about this man, right? She was hearing rumors about his wisdom and his wealth, rumors about who he was and all the things that he had done were kind of uh, spreading all throughout her kingdom. You know, I want you to consider that for a moment because I feel like nowadays when we consider international news reaching our doorsteps, it's not really impressive, right? Because nowadays, if something happens across the country or if it happens across the globe, we hear about it in seconds because we live in the day of Facebook and Twitter. But consider the, the queen's situation, right? People in her kingdom were talking about a man who lived 1,500 miles away. That's the distance between here and Dallas. And that was happening in a time where there was no social media, right? No television, no radio, nothing. It was simply word of mouth. It sort of helps us understand better that this Solomon was really a big deal, right? He really was. I mean, random people in Yemen are talking about this guy in Jerusalem. And all sorts of stories were being swapped, stories about his wisdom and stories about his wealth, so much so that the queen of a kingdom, right? The queen of a kingdom was also starting to pay attention. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, like, what's the deal with this Solomon, right? How did this come to be? How did he become so wealthy and, and so wise? And so Solomon's story is actually found in 1 Kings. Uh, so we read that in the first 11, 12 chapters or so, we read Solomon's story, and it turns out that Solomon is actually the son of a man named David, right? So we heard David's story last week, a Jay preached to us on it, and so we heard the specific story of David fighting that giant named Goliath. It's a, it's a popular story. Even if you didn't grow up in a church, you probably have heard that story before. He tells us that story, and it turns out that that same David ends up being the second king of Israel. That same David ends up being the second king of Israel. And when we pick up in 1 Kings, in the first chapter, we find out that after 40 years of ruling over Israel and providing for the people and, and fighting off enemies for Israel, that King David is now on his deathbed, right? David is about to die. And so people are asking the question, who's going to take over, right? David's about to die. Who's going to be the next king? And so after some conflict and some conversation, David says, it's going to be my son Solomon. Solomon is going to be the next king of David. I'm sorry, the king of Israel. And so right out of the gate, right out of the gate, Solomon is well received. There's actually a, chap um, there's actually a scene in chapter 1 uh, where we see him at his inauguration. And it says that Solomon rides into town on a donkey, right? He rides into town on a donkey and, and is being announced as the next king of Israel. And it says that the people hear this announcement and they begin screaming in excitement, right? They go out into the streets, they start playing music. They're just rejoicing all over the place because they're excited about this announcement. In fact, it says that the cheering was so loud that it felt like the earth was shaking. That's how excited these people were. Israel was evidently very excited about this new king who would be on the throne. But you see, it wasn't just the people who favored Solomon. The Bible says that God did too. You see, a few chapters later, a few chapters after chapter one, we read that Solomon is now actually the king, right? He's the king and he's going to bed one day. He lays down his head, he goes to sleep, and he has a dream. 
and God appears to him in a dream. God appears to him in a dream, and God basically says this. He says, what do you want me to give you? Right? God appears in a dream, and he's like, what do you want me to give you? No conditions, no strings attached. Whatever you ask, I'll give you. Right? And what's cool about Solomon's response is that it's not what you would expect someone to say. Listen to what he says. He says, and now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not, to, I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. Hear that. What does Solomon ask for, right? God shows up in a dream. He says, anything you want, you name it, you have it, right? Anything you want, what do you want? And he says, I want wisdom. I want wisdom. Consider that for a moment, right? The God of the universe. The God of the universe is showing up in your dream and granting you one wish. And he's saying, anything you want is yours. And remember, God owns everything. We just said that, right? God owns everything. And so there's nothing that he couldn't provide for Solomon if he had asked. His resources are, are unlimited. His reach extends far out. So he is able to provide anything to Solomon if he were to ask. And yet Solomon doesn't ask for power. He doesn't ask for riches. He doesn't ask for immortality. Instead, he says, God, you made me the king, right? You made it so that I would replace my father, David. Now, I'm a young guy. I, I'm sort of young, and, and I don't really know what I'm doing. You've made me king, and I'm supposed to be king over this great people. There's tons of them, and I want to do what's right. I want to serve them well. I want to be a good king. I want to do what's right and not do what's wrong, and I need your wisdom so that you would give me this wisdom so that I would be able to, to serve them well. Of all the things that Solomon could have asked God, Solomon decides to ask God for wisdom. And it says that the Lord is so pleased, right? The Lord is so pleased by what Solomon asked that he decides that he's going to be exceedingly generous to Solomon. This is what God says in response. He says, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. And then he says, I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. It says that God is so pleased with the way that Solomon approaches God and what he asks, that not only does God make Solomon wise, God makes him the wisest, right? He says to him, listen, there will be no one like you. There will be no one that ever existed before you or anyone that comes after you. There will be no one like you when it comes to your wisdom. And then he says, listen, I know that you didn't ask for this, right? But I'm going to give you riches and honor as well. I mean, plenty of it. I mean, no other king will be able to compare to you when it comes to how rich you are. And then it says that Solomon woke up from his dream. 
Could you imagine waking up from that dream? God approaches you in your dream, and he says, listen, whatever you want, I'll give to you. And, and they have this conversation. I don't know if you've ever had a dream before where something amazing happens, and you're extremely excited, and then you wake up, and you're like, are you serious? That was just a dream? And you're just like deeply disappointed, right? But it says here that this was different. Solomon wakes up, and he knows that it's true. He, he knows it is true because almost immediately he sees evidence of it being true. Like, for example, there's a story about these two prostitutes who come to see Solomon one day in the, in the temple, right? So they come to see Solomon, and they tell him that the both of them are actually living in the same house together. And it just so happens that the both of them both had sons relatively close to each other. I think they said within three days of each other. And so they tell him the story that one night they're all going to sleep, right? So they're all in their rooms, they're in their beds, and the women are in their beds with, uh, with their sons. And it says that sadly, one of the women sort of rolls over in the middle of the night and smothers her baby to death, okay? And so this woman wakes up and she sees that this child is dead and she panics. And so she's trying to figure out what to do. And so she gets up and she thinks about what to do. And then she decides to go into the next room. She goes into the next room. She sees the other woman lying there with the baby by her side. And she sort of creeps up to the bed. And she takes her baby, the baby that's now dead, and swaps it out for the other baby, the baby that's alive. Kind of tiptoes back into her room and goes back to sleep. And it says that in a few hours, the unsuspecting mother now wakes up and looks to her side and sees that there's a dead baby next to her. So she picks it up and she looks at the baby and she almost immediately recognizes that this is not her son. She knows, I mean, this is his mother, right? So she wakes up and she sees him and she knows this is not my son. So she gets up, she goes into the next room and it says that they start arguing. They start arguing about whose baby is whose and they go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth and now it ends up that they're in front of King Solomon arguing about whose baby is whose, and they're asking him for help. So Solomon's standing there, and he's listening to the story, and he needs to decide what he's going to do. Now, we need to remember, right, this isn't uh, the time of DNA testing, right? So they can't do that, and, and Maury Povich hasn't entered into the scene yet, so that's not an option either. So Solomon needs to figure out what he's going to do. He needs to develop a plan on how he's going to resolve this. So this is what he decides. He tells his servant, he says, go and grab a sword for me. Okay? And he says this. He says, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Now this is supposed to be wise King Solomon, right? Uh, you probably hear this and you're probably like, what in the world are you talking about? Could you imagine the servant that he told this to? The one who had to go grab the, the sword and come back and do this? He's probably like, this was your big plan? This is your big idea on how to resolve this situation? But obviously, it was just a setup, right? And it turns out that it works. Because the real mother hears what Solomon says, and almost immediately she says, listen, listen, j just give the baby to the other woman. Right? Just give the baby to the other woman. Just don't kill the baby, no matter what you do, right? Because why? This is her son. And even if that means that she can't be with her own son, she doesn't want the child to be killed. And so she says, just give the baby to the other woman. 
But the fake mother was more than ready to split that baby in half, right? Because in her mind, if I can't have my son, no one's going to have a son, right? And so she's like, go ahead, do what you need to do. And by their reactions, it says that Solomon immediately got his answer, right? And the baby was returned to the right mother, and his plan works. It was ingenious. And what it says is that all of the people of Israel heard about what Solomon did, and they were just amazed, overwhelmed by his wisdom. It was probably the talk of the town. You imagine that news was spreading. People were out sitting around dinner tables, and they were talking about, did you hear what he did? Did you hear how these prostitutes came and how he decided they couldn't stop talking about it? But you see, it wasn't even just this one instance, right? When we keep reading through 1 Kings, we find out that Solomon was this guy who just kind of, uh, you know, spewed out Proverbs one after the other. Proverbs are these wise sayings or these uh, words of wisdom that's supposed to help us to consider how to live life skillfully or with wisdom. You know, and, and some of us, maybe we'll have a, a proverb here and there uh, based off of observations, but the, the word says that Solomon had over 3,000 proverbs that people were documenting, things that he was saying left and right. He was sort of oozing wisdom. I mean, some of us know somebody like that, right? Maybe they don't say much, but when they do say something, it's like it's gold, and you kind of cling on to every word. Well, that was Solomon like every day, Right? Every single day, he's just spewing out proverb after proverb, and people have never seen such a thing. And it says, soon enough, word begins to travel, and people from all different types of nations were coming to hear uh, about who Solomon was and, and the things that he was saying. And the queen was one of those people. But you see, it wasn't even just the wisdom of Solomon that people were impressed by. They were also impressed by his wealth. Right? We read in the scriptures that King Solomon was raking in about 666 talents of gold a year. Now, to you and I, that means nothing because none of us get paid in talents anymore. But a talent is, is, is essentially about 75 pounds. Now, if we were to convert that into some measure where we can uh, weigh gold, we'll say that that was equivalent to about 1,100 troy ounces of gold. One talent. Right? So today, gold is worth about $1,300 per ounce. So Solomon was making about 732 ounces of gold a year, which means that his total salary just for being king a year was about $950 million a year. Okay? He wasn't doing too bad. And it says in the scriptures that he was king for 40 years. So during his reign of 40 years, what that means is that he made about $38 billion just by being king. And so everything about Solomon was extravagant. It says that his home was humongous. It took 13 years for them to build it, and they used the finest of materials that they could find. It says that he was big on importing and, importing and exporting, and that he owned fleets of boats that would bring... Uh, to Solomon, all sorts of rare items, gold and silver, even things like peacocks and apes would be brought to his temple, right? He was a collector. It was said that he would receive gifts from other kings, more gold and more, more silver. It said that he owned livestock of all kinds, thousands of horses and cattle and everything else that you can imagine. 
we actually read that Solomon was such a baller that we, we read that even his plates and cups, it says, were made out of pure gold, right? He's eating off of plates that are made out of pure gold. And so it's hard for us uh, to maybe put uh, a number or a figure on Solomon's wealth, but some scholars estimate today that maybe he was worth, in, in today's terms, nearly $100 billion, right? If Solomon existed today, his net worth would be around $100 billion. You see, the richest guy in the world today, on the planet today, is this guy named Carlos Heu. He's from Mexico, and his net worth is a mere $73 billion, right? So what this means is that Solomon was no joke. Whether we're talking about back then or right now, Solomon was indeed a heavy hitter. And so people couldn't stop talking about him. Stories about his wealth and his uh, wisdom were spreading like wildfire. And the queen was one of these people who was hearing these stories. And so what did she decide to do? She decides that she needs to meet him, right? And so we need to consider for a moment how crazy that really is, right? This is not an ordinary woman, right? She's not a woman who's in need of help. She's not hoping that she'll meet Solomon and maybe take back home some riches for herself. She was powerful, right? She was wealthy. She had servants, right? I mean, if the leader of a country wants to find out more information about a person or something, you would think that at best they would send a representative to go and find out and then bring back a report on the stuff that they've heard. I mean, there's no way that a person of power travels 1,500 miles through the desert to figure out whether or not some set of rumors are true. That doesn't happen. But that's exactly what the, the queen does. It says that she's so intrigued by the things that she has heard that she needed to go and see for herself. So what does she do? She jumps into a chariot along with her entourage, and it says that they set off to Jerusalem. And so this is her plan. She's going to go to Jerusalem, and she's going to ask Solomon the hardest questions that she can come up with, right? You can sort of imagine, they're probably in the chariot, and they're kind of discussing with each other, like, does this sound like it's hard? And they're kind of maybe revising the questions, coming up with this tight set of questions that they're going to ask the moment that they see this king. And so after traveling for, for a few days, I imagine, she reaches Jerusalem, and this is what it says. It says, when she came to Solomon, and she told him all that was on her mind, and Solomon answered all her questions, there was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. You can imagine how this conversation maybe started off, right? You imagine that maybe uh, the queen sort of throws a softball at him at first, right? An easy uh, question, just sort of get the conversation going. But then with each subsequent question, maybe it gets more and more and more difficult. But what it says is that Solomon knocks each one of these out of the park, right? I mean, there was no sign of him being stumped. He had an answer for everything. And you would imagine that after throwing question after question after question at Solomon, that maybe at some point the queen pauses for a second. Maybe she pauses and she kind of sinks back into her chair. And she's just in need of a moment to sort of process all the things that she has heard. Because this is what it says. It says, when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers and his burnt offerings, 
that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. It says there was no more breath in her. What an unbelievable response, right? You imagine she's sitting back in her chair and she's sort of kind of thinking through all the things that Solomon has just said to her, all the wisdom that has been spewing from his mouth, replaying it. And it says from there, it's sort of her eyes begin to wander, right? And she starts looking around at all that she sees before her. And she's seeing this spectacular home that Solomon's living in. And she's sort of overwhelmed by what, how amazing this home is. And then maybe in a distance, she sees a table with a bunch of food on it. And she's looking at that table. And remember, she's the queen of a kingdom, right? She's not hungry. She has also seen amazing food. But she looks at the table, and she marvels at the type of food that Solomon and his people are able to eat from. And then she says, it says that she looks at the number of officials and servants that surround him. And it says that she even notices the kind of clothes that they have on, right? It's not even just Solomon and what he's wearing. There's, he, she's saying, I mean, look at even the servants. The servants are decked out in a way that I've never seen before. It says that she's hearing all that Solomon has said and seeing all that she's seen. And it says that it leaves her breathless. She's awestruck, right? She has no words. You know, maybe some of us know what that's like. I remember the first time when I visited the Niagara Falls, right? I remember that uh, growing up, I heard a bunch of things, just like many of us, heard a bunch of things about the Niagara Falls. I've seen pictures of it in my textbooks, and I remember other folks who had gone there and came back and told me about what they saw. Uh, I heard a lot about it. But I remember what I felt when I first saw the Niagara Falls. I remember I was in my 20s. I went up with my friend Jerry, and we had drove, driven up together. We finally reached there. And if you've been there before, you know that you actually, when you get to the falls, you actually hear the falls before you even see it, right? You sort of walk towards the falls, and the, the sound of millions of gallons of water rushing before you is sort of overwhelming your ears. And it's like with each step that you're taking towards the falls, it gets louder and louder. And then finally, you walk up and you see the Niagara Falls. I remember leaning over a railing, just kind of looking out into the water. And I remember just thinking, this is unbelievable. I mean, I mean it was just amazing. It was, it was so much more than I had imagined. And I just stood there sort of watching in amazement. And in all honesty, I was sort of just left breathless. Right? I mean, how do you describe what is happening in front of you? There's no words. And so I imagine that this is what the, the queen is feeling at this moment as well. You know, her ears had heard a lot about King Solomon and his wisdom and his wealth, but now her eyes had seen it. And the text says that she's, gra she's gasping for air. So after she takes a moment to sort of gather herself, she says this. She says, the report was true. The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. What is she saying? She's saying, listen, 
I didn't know what to believe when I first heard about you, right? I heard all sorts of things. And if I were to be honest, I was a bit skeptical. That's why I even just made the trip out here. I've heard a whole bunch of things about who you are and what you have done, and I didn't know what to believe. But now that I'm here and hearing all that I have heard and seeing all that I have seen, I can't help but know that it's true. In fact, I want to say to you, I only knew half the story. I mean, my mind wasn't able to, to really imagine the truth of what your situation is like, the truth of who you are. It's so much better than anything that I had imagined. And it says that she's so overwhelmed by her experience that she goes on to say, happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Catch that, right? This is the queen of a kingdom. The queen of a kingdom comes to visit Solomon and she sees her, his servants and she's envious. She's envious of servants and men who get the chance to tend to him because she's saying, they get a chance to be with you. They get a chance to enjoy of your riches. They get a chance to hear wisdom flowing from your lips day after day. It's like a right jealousy, right? A right jealousy, a realization of how good they really have it. But that's not even it. She keeps on going. She says, blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. You see, in witnessing Solomon's wisdom and wealth, she can't help but worship Solomon's God. We need to remember, this is a woman from the East, right? She's a Gentile, right? She's not a part of God's covenant people. Most likely in her own town, she was a, a, an idol worshiper. But after meeting Solomon and realizing how much God must love Israel, that he would give them a king like this, she was deeply moved to worship Yahweh. Meeting Israel's king leads her and moves her to worship the king of kings. How awesome is that? What a right and great response. But here's the thing, she's not done. She's so filled with joy that she decides to even shower Solomon with gifts, right? It says that the queen gives Solomon an abundance of gold and spices and precious stones, all sorts of things, things that she owned. Now imagine, right? This is Solomon, right? Solomon is Solomon, right? What could this woman possibly give Solomon that he doesn't already have, right? It was probably like a drop in the bucket for him. I mean, what do you give someone who already owns everything? But the queen didn't care. Because she wasn't giving to Solomon because she felt like he was in need. She was giving to Solomon because she came and saw the king. And she's overwhelmed by all that she has seen and heard. And so out of her joy, she wants to give to him. She wants to give to him generously. She wants to give to him sacrificially. And listen to how Solomon responds. It says, King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired, whatever she asked, besides what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon. So what does Solomon do? He sees what Sheba, the queen of Sheba does, and he responds by outgiving her. He outgives her. Remember, he doesn't owe her anything, right? She came to visit him. He doesn't owe her anything. 
But it says that, the Sol that Solomon gave the queen all that she desired, whatever she asked, out of his bounty. And just like that, their meeting comes to an end. And it says that the queen of Sheba sort of gathers her entourage, gets back into her carriage, and heads back home. Could you imagine what that trip back home was like? Right? You have 1,500 miles to talk through all that you have heard and all that you have seen. And I'm sure that that entire trip, all they did was spending, spent time uh, talking about Solomon and what he had done. I'm sure they were laughing about all sorts of things. Somebody must have said, did you see that cup? I tried picking that cup up. It was so heavy. I can't believe they drink out of that every single day. Or maybe someone else says, did you hear how he answered your question? I really thought you had him there. But he was so wise in the way that he responded to you. And they were trading stories, swapping back and forth in joy, overwhelmed by what they had seen and what they had heard. And they probably couldn't wait to get home and tell everyone, right? After an encounter like that, you want to tell everyone and anyone that's willing to listen about all the things that you had heard. You see, the queen and her people didn't have to depend on rumors anymore because they had seen the king with their own eyes and their lives would never be the same. Well, thousands of years later, what we hear here in the Bible is that another set of visitors traveled from the east to come to Jerusalem in search of a king. And they too were royalty. And though their ears had heard much about them, they were dying to be able to see the king for themselves. Except the king that they were searching after wasn't clothed in riches. Instead, it said that this king was born into poverty. And this king that they came to see wasn't surrounded by men who were serving him. It says that this king was surrounded by a father and a mother. But the Bible says that these wise men traveled nearly a thousand miles to come and to see King Jesus. And when they saw him, it says they were overcome with joy, that he was greater than they had even imagined, that they fell down and they worshiped him immediately based off of what they had seen. And that they began showering him with gifts of, of gold and spices. And it says that their lives would never be the same. Their ears had heard much about this king, but now their eyes had seen him, and their lives would never be the same. You see, in the Gospels, we hear that though the wise men responded to this king in this way, that that wasn't always the case, right? We actually hear that there were many people who responded to King, king Jesus in a very different way. In fact, what were supposed to be some of the wisest men during Jesus' time wanted nothing to do with him. In Matthew chapter 12, we actually read that there is an encounter between Jesus and a group of guys called the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were known as a group of people who really knew the, the Old Testament law, and they really knew the Old Testament scriptures. They knew it so well that they would teach it and strive to live by it. But these Pharisees weren't really big fans of Jesus. It was like wherever Jesus went, they were out to sort of get him, to try to accuse him of the things that he was doing to find wrong with him. And Matthew chapter 12 tells us of one of these instances. It says that Jesus is walking around with his disciples on the Sabbath day, right? On the day of rest. 
And no matter what, what Jesus and the disciples do, it seems like these Pharisees show up and have something critical to say about him. So for example, they're walking around and he's walking around with the disciples and, and it says that he gets hungry, right? And the disciples are hungry. So they look into a field and see a field full of grain. And so they go into that field and they start picking grain for themselves to start eating. And it says, who shows up? The Pharisees do, right? And the Pharisees say, you know today's a Sabbath. Today's a day of rest. You're not supposed to be doing work by picking out food for yourselves to eat. So Jesus responds to them, and then he sort of goes on his way again. And it says that he keeps walking. And at that point, all sorts of people were coming to Jesus, asking to be healed, because they too have heard a lot about this king. And they knew that he was able to do things for him, for them. And so... It says that people were asking him to be healed, and so he looks on them and he heals them. And again, the Pharisees show up. And since they don't know how to explain it, it says that they accuse Jesus of using satanic power to heal these people, right? They see what Jesus does, and, and they can't explain it, so they accuse him of using satanic power. And again, they're criticizing what Jesus is doing, refusing to believe. But here's the kicker, right? Even though the Pharisees were sort of bent on not believing anything that Jesus does or refusing to believe anything that he may do, it says in verse 38 that they ask him for a sign. It says, would you give us a sign so that we would believe you? The Pharisees want a sign. Remember, these guys have been following Jesus around for some time now, right? They've been following him for some time, so they've seen the things that he, he has done already healing sicknesses and diseases of all kind. He's raised people from the dead. It says that he has authority over storms and that he's teaching with this unbelievable wisdom and they want a sign. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves is, after witnessing all that they have witnessed, what more of a sign are the Pharisees asking for? Right? I mean, what else will they now see He's raised somebody from the dead. He's healed people of sicknesses. He's calmed the storm by speaking to it. What more of a sign do the Pharisees want to see? What will push them over the edge and say, you know what, I really do believe you now. What kind of sign do they want? But you see, Jesus isn't a fool, right? He hears this and he knows what they're up to. So instead of giving them a sign, he gives them a warning. This is what he says. He says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus reminds the Pharisees. Again, they would be very familiar with the, with the scriptures, right? So he reminds the Pharisees of this story, of the story of the queen coming to visit Solomon. The story that we just talked about. And Jesus says, the queen of Sheba traveled from the ends of the earth to come and visit King Solomon. And I'm sure that when he said that, the Pharisees began to remember the story, that the queen came sort of skeptical and had a bunch of questions, that she came before Solomon and asked him a bunch of questions and was kind of going back and forth. And then she, see, she was able to see the wisdom that came from Solomon's mouth and to see all the wealth that he had and that in the end, she was left breathless. And that in the end, she couldn't help but worship God. Well, Jesus says that this same queen, this very queen, will rise up on the day of judgment and condemn them. 
because they refuse to believe. This very queen will rise up and condemn them because they refuse to believe. So the question is, why does Jesus say that? Because when the queen came and saw the greatness of Solomon, of his wisdom and his riches, and when she surveyed all that she had seen, she couldn't help but believe and worship God. It was undeniable to her. But Jesus is saying, don't you see? Don't you see that something infinitely greater than Solomon is standing right before you? I mean, sure, Solomon was wise, right? Sure, he was able to answer all sorts of questions and, and kind of handle all sorts of situations. But remember, Solomon needed to ask God for wisdom. At the end of the day, Solomon was just an ordinary man who was given great wisdom from God. And that's why Jesus is greater than Solomon. You see, Jesus isn't merely a man who became wise. The Bible says that he is the wisdom of God. He embodies the wisdom of God. Colossians says that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see, Jesus wasn't simply given wisdom from God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God, and he's standing there in the flesh right in front of the Pharisees. And while the, the queen couldn't help but be blown away by the wisdom that she saw coming out of Solomon's mouth, these Pharisees are standing before the wisdom of God, and they refuse to believe. And when it comes to riches, as much as Solomon had, it was like a drop in the bucket compared to what Christ's wealth looks like. Here Colossians, it says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Hear that. Everything that exists, right? Everything that exists, whether it's visible or invisible, whether it's on heaven or on earth, everything that exists was created through Jesus and for Jesus. Now, no doubt, no doubt Solomon was wealthy. He was a billionaire. But how do you quantify Jesus' wealth? He owns everything. In fact, everything that Solomon owns actually belongs to Jesus. Solomon was at best a really rich steward. And so the creator and the owner of everything in this world was standing right in front of the Pharisees. And while the, the queen couldn't help but see Solomon's wealth and believe, the Pharisees refused to believe even though they stand before the creator and the owner of everything. Brothers and sisters, Solomon was great. But something greater than Solomon is here, and his name is Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, I, I think God is inviting us to take a moment to consider that. Your Savior, your Savior is wiser and wealthier than the wisest and wealthiest people on this planet. But the scripture says that though Jesus was the richest, he became poor so that through his poverty, you might become rich in him. That you might find the fullness of riches in him. And it says that though Jesus was the wisest, it was through the foolishness of something like dying on the cross that he saves those who believe. And so as we stand here this morning before this King Jesus, the question is, how can we not be moved by him? 
When we consider how much God must love us that he would send us this king, the wisest and the richest of kings for us, how can we not be moved by this King Jesus? How can we not worship the King of Kings? How can we not find him to actually be greater than anything that our minds were able to imagine? How could we not desire to go back home and tell everyone of the things that we have seen and the things that we have heard? How will our lives ever be the same again? We were in the presence, and we are in the presence, of the King of Kings. And if you're here this morning and you're skeptical, I think Jesus is inviting you to come and to grill him. Come and grill him. Ask him your hardest question. I mean, there's nothing, I'm telling you, there's nothing that Jesus is afraid of you asking him. There's nothing that he isn't able to answer you. I promise that. He knows all things. He is the wisdom of God. But what, this is what Jesus says. He says, when you come before him, don't come like the Pharisees. Don't come like the Pharisees who were bent on refusing to believe anything, regardless of what they heard or what they saw. Instead, Jesus says, come like the queen who is intent on discovering the truth and finds herself breathless when she does. Jesus is the greater Solomon. He really is. And in him, we find the fullness of riches and wealth. And so today, as we worship, let our hearts be moved to worship. May God allow us to find ourselves breathless as we stand before the King of Kings. Let us worship him as he deserves to be worshipped. Let's pray together. God, how true it is that we can truly be before the King of Kings, the wisest of all, the richest of all, and not be moved. How true it is that somehow the things that we have said and the things that we have heard over and over again can become overly familiar to our ears. So that it is true that we can get more excited about lesser things than we do the living God. And yet we're grateful that even though we don't see you as you really are, you don't come to condemn us. In fact, you come to reveal yourself. The queen had to travel to Solomon to come and to discover whether or not he was truly who he said he was. We worship the king of kings who came to us so that he would reveal for us that he is indeed all that we have heard. We worship the better king, the true king, who is worthy of our worship. The king that truly does leave us breathless when we consider him. And so I pray, God, this morning, that for those who do know you, would you stir our affections for you in a way that our hearts cannot do anything but to worship you. Our hearts cannot do anything but to proclaim that you truly are all that you have said and that our lives have never been the same since. Would you help us so that when we leave these four walls, that our mouths would not be kept closed? How can we not tell others of the things that we have heard and the things that we have seen? And Father, if we're sitting here this morning and we're skeptical, I'm grateful, God, that you invite us to come and to ask. 
You invite us to come and to grill you, to ask whatever may be on our minds, the things that we have a hard time believing. You invite us to come with our doubts. You're not afraid. Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom. And he desires for us to know all truth. He has sent his spirit so that we would know all truth. Would you overwhelm any of us who are sitting here this morning feeling skeptical with this truth? So that we too, all of us, gathered together this morning would undeniably see God for who he is and be led to worship. Please hear our prayer, Father. We're grateful, we're so grateful that you have already answered our prayer in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.